Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. We're giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. And now, here are the doctors. Well, John, I think we have an awesome show lineup for today. We got some very timely information. You know, we're going to start off talking about your parents. Um, there's unfortunately a lot of people in in our position, you know, that are, are getting up into their 50s and um, particularly my position and, uh, you know, are having to start helping their parents financially make decisions. And so we're going to talk about managing your parents' finances, some of the thing, pitfalls that you can run into, how to get over those and how to approach that issue between your parents and you and your siblings. Um, very important topic. Yeah, I agree, Steve. That is um, becoming more and more relevant for folks as uh, people are retiring. And um, a lot of good information there. We're also going to look at um, a pretty cool article about um, predictions about Wall Street. We're going to look back in history a little bit and see some of the iconic uh, predictions and how wrong they were. Yes, right. yes, they have been very wrong in the past. The, I think this is an interesting article. Yeah, the pundits get it wrong um, about fifty percent of the time. So making decisions on headlines just is not a good uh, good strategy. And we're gonna we're gonna uh, talk about some of the um, the famous uh, predictions on the market and uh, show how wrong they were. Yeah, that'll be be very interesting. By the way, I'm Steve Marbert. <clears throat> I'm a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 23 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis, also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro. I have an MBA in finance and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 25 years. And we're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly show. Our podcasts are up every Friday afternoon. Yeah, go check out our website, moneymd.net. We have a link to the podcast. You can listen to it also from the site. And we have a lot of tools and a lot of videos out there, a lot of educational material. We also have a Facebook page and a Twitter feed as well that we'll occasionally tweet. There you Info. go. That's right. So, we tweet just just like the president. Out there. That's right. <clears throat> Maybe not quite, not like, quite the pres- like that the president, <laughs> but we do tweet. We're, we're all over the place on the Internet, so you can definitely find us. So do check us out on our website. Um, also, you can email us directly, or you can link to us off the website, but you can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. We'd love to hear from you. would love to hear your questions, and we will answer those here on the show. But we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, Steve, we talked about this last week uh, a little bit, um, and it has to do with college majors. And um, the source comes from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And um, the starting pay for social services and psychology graduates averages about $30,000, and um, about half get a graduate degree. So, um, you know, there's a lot of majors that are on there, probably 50 or 60, but there's a lot of good information. But you just got to understand when you go into a particular major, what, what the job, um, you know, landscape looks like the unemployment, the underemployment, the salary debt levels and so forth. So there's, there's some ones that you would expect to be on top, like, um, nursing and engineering um, has very good. And and not everybody's cut out to do engineering. I get it. But just understanding as you go into some of these majors, what it looks like is very, very important. Yeah, I like to say you want to make sure you get an effective degree. You know, it's a degree that you can get a job in and one that that will justify the amount of money you have to spend to to get that degree. Um, So maybe your student loan debt, when you get out, you want to make sure you can repay those student loans. So 
make sure your degree is effective. And, and that tool off our website is a very useful tool in helping you make that determination. So um, <clears throat> great, great fact of the week. You want to make sure you don't get stuck in something where the, there's like a 75% chance you won't work in your career. Mm-hmm. So, all right. And that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is managing your parents' finances. Yeah, this is based on a bottom line article um, by Shirley Whitnick, Whitnack, uh here very recently. But, you know, John, I mean, it, it can be a real challenge to get involved in your parents' finances. I mean, there's often resistance from siblings and the parents themselves. Taking over parents' finances it can be challenging in the best circumstances. And, you know, in the event of a of someone's illness, you know, or mental decline, not only do you have to deal with the myriad of financial issues, but also the emotional challenges as well. So it becomes very difficult, very touchy. And before you can even start your day-to-day financial role, you got to overcome a number of common hurdles, such as obtaining the legal authority to act on the behalf of your, your parents or your loved ones and coordinating the efforts with other family members. <clears throat> so to help you get started managing your parents' finances and succeed over time, here are some of the issues that you're likely going to discover and how to tackle them successfully. Yeah, the first issue, Steve, is your loved one hasn't done any planning, and uh, they don't really have haven't thought through someone handling or helping them with their finances. And uh, you know, people do put off estate planning and end of life planning as well. So it's possible no one has been officially named to make financial decisions for for your parent or your loved one um, when they're no longer able to do that themselves. And even if your loved one has appointed someone years ago, that person may no longer be able to fulfill that role. So you know, lack of planning is going to come up as an issue. Yeah, that's very, very common. And so you'll need to work with your loved ones to obtain the legal authority to handle their finances. Um, if your your relative is completely incapacitated, then you'll have to go to court to get a petition for guardianship. Um, you know, it's a process that often involves a lot of, you know, psychological evaluation to declare your loved one incompetent. Um, you know, such extreme efforts like that, though, are rare, though. In most instances, you know, elderly people, even those with memory problems, are able to execute basic financial planning documents like a power of attorney. And that leads up to the power of attorney issue. Um, <clears throat> that is the most common, most important document that you'll need in order to become your loved one's financial caregiver. Um, it'll declare you as the person's agent and it'll provide you the legal authority to sign tax returns and financial documents, to write and deposit checks, to sell assets such as stocks, bonds, real estate, and to make other financial moves on behalf of your parents. And it may cost roughly maybe 150 to $250 to have an attorney draft a uh, power of attorney. But this is money well spent because an attorney can draft a, a power of attorney document that addresses your relative specific needs. For example, you know, if your <clears throat> if your uh, parents um, want to transfer assets to a spouse or to children, you know, while they're alive, you may need to get, you know, a gifting provision put into the power of attorney, which isn't included in a standard power of attorney. Um, so you want to have one of those drawn up by a professional. In many, many cases, a parent may decide to name two or more adult children to share the power of attorney. So if multiple siblings are serving as agents, 
then consider writing a power of attorney to specify that each of you can act independently. Um, that will make it a lot easier whenever you're dealing with your parents' finances. If, if you know, when you're out of town and you're unavailable, that you'll have somebody else you can trust to take care of that. And if not, you know, all the agents will have to sign every check, which may be tricky for you and your siblings if you live far apart. So keep that in mind. You know, there's a lot of rules that they govern the power of attorneys, and they vary from state to state. Yeah, but here's a caution, Steve, is um, make sure you keep your own financial accounts separate from your loved ones. Um, that way, no family member or other person can accuse you of misusing that person's money. For instance, once your your loved one's Social Security checks and other income uh, start coming in, they should be deposited directly into that person's checking account, not yours, even though you have control of that checking account. So make sure you keep meticulous records of all transactions and all bills paid um, to answer any potential questions that could arise. That's right. And then, um, you know, another key document you're going to need, of course, is the will. Um, you might want help. You might want to help your loved ones create a will if they don't have one or update their existing will that no longer serves the purpose that it was created for. Um, if you want, if you help with a will, be careful that you don't open yourself up to accusations that an illness or, or frailty uh, made the incapacitated person susceptible to your influence um, in shaping the will in your favor. You know, for example, if you isolate the person from your friends and family and what they choose is to leave you a drastically increased part of the will, that might make you more vulnerable to accusations like that. So you want to be very careful about that. Another document you might need is a health care power of attorney. You know, if you're making financial decisions for your loved one, you also may end up being the person to make health care decisions for them. Um, to do so, you have to have a separate health care power of attorney with your loved one's attorney and a living will, which uh, directs the doctors about the end-of-life medical-type care. So those are all very important documents to have. Yeah, another issue here on the list, Steve, is um, your your loved ones uh, is very disorganized. I mean, ideally, your your loved one would have, you know, great files and making it really easy for you to to take a look at and get all the financial information you need, or they would be able to tell you where the various accounts and and the records are. But often, um, you got to be a, a detective. You got to go figure it out, um, which can include looking through files, sifting through mail and even going through closets or an attic. And, you know, you want to make sure you obtain a clear picture of their, their income and their assets, their insurance. This includes everything from, you know, bank uh, to brokerage accounts, Social Security information, any kind of pensions or retirement accounts, um, insurance policies, maybe health, life, disability, long-term care. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's someone in our local area that um, actually will help uh, organize all this. And yep. um, if you're interested in that, you can certainly reach out to us. But getting organized is, is step number one. It really is. Yeah. And if you aren't sure that you've uncovered all the, the banks and brokerage statements and different accounts out there, a good clue is to look at the tax return. You know, a tax return it will will show you any interest, capital gains that reported to the IRS. Um, you also can call your your um, your parents' former employer to find out whether they should be receiving a pension or if the employer no longer exists, contact the pension benefit guarantee guarantee corporation. And you actually can go on their website and you can look for lost pensions on their website. So there's several ways to research that. 
But next, you know, examine your loved one's expenses to create a household budget. Um, you'll need to pull together uh, your loved one's monthly bills, the receipts, um, things such as for Medicare, uh, medical expenses, credit cards, other basic living expenses such as food and utilities. If, you're, if your loved one hasn't saved their past bills, then your power of, uh, your power of attorney provides you the authority to call the local utility company and, and the other creditors to get that information. Um, of course, you'll have to provide them a copy of that power of attorney to do that. But, uh, but you have the tools there, so you got to dig up and you got to get this, this uh, information together so you understand where all their expenses are going um, to do that. Yeah. And you're going to want to make sure to, um, to check out this website. It's called benefitscheckup.org. It's a free service of the National Council on Aging. It's going to tell you if your loved one is taking advantage of all the federal, state, and private benefit programs they may qualify for. So it's another step, but it's a kind of a central place that you can look and see if there's anything that uh, your loved one can, can use. Absolutely. You may also want to check for any abandoned accounts, such as old bank accounts, pension benefits, or insurance payments. Most states have a database of any lost assets like that. Um, So search for unclaimed property um, in your state's name, and you usually can find the website where you can enter the name, and you can see if there's any lost property there. Uh, the last one here on the list is you need a special designation to deal with Social Security and veterans benefits. A power of attorney won't help you if you need to manage your relatives, uh, your loved ones, Social Security payments, and provide information to the uh, Social Security Administration. So instead, you'll need a representative pay designation. To get this, you have to complete the uh, Social Security's form, SSA-11, and apply in person at your nearest Social Security Administration office. Um, you know, similarly to manage your, your relatives' veterans' benefits, you have to apply uh, as a, a VA fiduciary. And to do so, you have to submit a written request <clears throat> with your, your parents' name, their VA file number. Typically, it's their Social Security number without any dashes. And then also, you're, you have to go to your local VA office to do that. The VA, they'll contact you to assess the qualifications um, after you do that. And, uh, you know, this will include a credit report review, a criminal background check, an interview, um, typically in person. So there's quite a bit involved there, but uh, that's a whole separate process. So keep that in mind as well if you need to manage your parents' finances. Okay, and that leads us up here to our uh, question of the week. Yeah, Steve, we both have um, quite a few clients that own their own businesses, and I know you've had these conversations over the years. But yep. um, the question is, is hey, you know, I have a business, um, and um, I want to sell my firm. How do I go about doing that? And, you know, a lot of these firms, maybe one-person firms, they've been in business for 20 or 30 years, and they don't really have a plan, and I call it monetizing their their business, but how do you turn that asset into income and retirement? And you can do that a couple of different ways, but you really need to sit down with your advisor. I think that would be a good person to talk to. And also an attorney, an attorney um, that puts together deals. Um, I have someone coming in uh, today that I'm going to, going to talk with. They're wanting to sell their business and we may uh, link them up with a uh, a broker that sells businesses and also an attorney as well. Yeah. 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 I think the word broker is, is kind of key. You know, I mean, businesses are not, very liquid, particularly partnerships. <clears throat> and so 
it's very hard to find a good buyer for, you know, a lot of companies like that. John, it's very specific, you know, unless you have a partner that you can sell to, I think you want to try to get a broker involved that has a, has a wide net they can cast to get a good valuation on, you know, what your business is worth and, and make sure you get a fair price for it. So I think getting a, a broker involved is also a, <clears throat> a good step forward. So that's a great uh, question. All right, and that leads up to our next topic here, and that is um, the pundits. They they do get it wrong occasionally, mm. more than occasionally, John. Yeah, I think uh, we saw a stat. Uh, there was a study done, and about 47% of the time the market experts – got the the um the right direction of the markets and interest rates and so forth. So they're wrong more than they're right. That's right. That's the takeaway. We can be done with this article. Yeah, unfortunately <laughs> Just, it's it's really that simple. Really but that simple. uh <clears throat> but it's an interesting article. I think there's a lot here. Yeah, and you know, trying to determine how Wall Street, you know, is going to behave next week or next month or even next year is is difficult and, and really impossible. Uh to predict the near term direction of the market, you may also need to predict um earnings seasons and central bank policies, the direction of uh the global economy and you know, you got uh political, you know, international issues that are going on and so forth. And, you know, that's not to say forecasting is useless. You could even argue that it is uh you know, it's a necessity. Um but every month economists are polled about um, you know, their median forecast for hiring and inflation and economic indicators. And those median forecasts are often close to the mark, but um, they're not exactly right. And the people that try to predict the markets are awfully, often grossly wrong. Yeah, absolutely grossly wrong. And um, so figuring out what lies ahead for st- stocks, however, is is more of a guessing game than anything else. You know, looking backwards, um, you know, some of these very bold predictions that have been made for the market, they were way off the mark. They were nowhere close in many cases. You know, Dow 30,000, you know, more than a decade ago, there were a few analysts that boldly predicted the Dow would climb to 30,000, um, you know, long before today. And, uh, of course, it has not reached that height even today. Of course, it eventually will. But, um... Uh, you know, I mean, people make these predictions all the time, and they are way wrong. Yeah, there's a guy named Harry Dent, and uh, he wrote a book called The Great Boom Ahead. He predicted an amazing run for both the economy and the market back in the mid-'90s. And, you know, he was right for the first five years. The markets did extremely well from 95 to 99. Uh, the, the 1999 bestseller, it was called The Roaring, Roaring 2000s in a position that uh, the Dow would go up to 30,000, maybe 35,000 in the near future as maturing baby boomers poured money into equities. And and he was wrong. He was flat out wrong. What happened is there was a lost decade. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I told you this here recently that I actually heard him in person um, in a talk in 95, I believe it was. And yeah, he had just written, released his book, The Great Boom Ahead, and, and he was very entertaining, and he had very convincing graphs, you know, about the baby boom population and how that correlated to the stock market. But, you know, when I looked at that data, it, it was very obvious to me that he had data mined that, those graphs, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of overlaid them and made it look very convincing. But one was on a logarithmic scale and one was on an absolute scale. And there was no correlation. Being an engineer, I knew that those graphs really had no correlation to one another. And uh, yet he used that to kind of sell his book. And he looked like a genius for about four or five years Mm -hmm. while the market took off. 
But then came the dot-com crash in 2000, which kind of brought it all back to reality. Yeah, so he was talking about the Dow being at 30,000, maybe 35. It ended the 2000 um, decade at, at about 11,500. So he missed just a... Just a little little high. Yeah, just by about 19,000 points or so. So another example as a money manager, this gentleman named Robert Zuccaro had been a part of a team that had realized triple-digit returns uh, in the late 1990s. He put out a book soon afterward called Dow 30,000 by 2008, Why It's Different This Time. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely different this time. It was different, yeah. As, as the market cratered in 2008, you may say his timing was a little bit bad. Just a little off. Just a little bit. There was some more analysts, uh, Glassman and Hassett, who um, authored a, a, another book um, called Dow 36,000, The New Strategy for Profiting from the coming rise in the stock market. It came out in 2000 and uh, certainly proved to be overly optimistic from their standpoint. Yes, it did. I mean, Harry changed his tune very quickly, you know, and over time in 2011, he told the Tampa Bay Times that the blue chips would plunge to a dismal level by 2014 of 3,300, not thousand, but hundred. Um, well, the Dow finished 2014 at 17,823. Again, he was just a little low that time, John. <laughs> I mean, he just, he's missing it on both sides. Um, yeah, the Dow, for the record, the, the Dent now sees the, the bubble collapse, he says, starting in 2016, 2017. He missed that one too. He missed that one too. <laughs> you know, soon breeding widespread civil unrest in America. Yeah, yeah, he's written so many books predicting so many things, if, you know, it's... You think if you took his forecast and did the opposite, that'd probably be a good strategy. It might be a good strategy, <laughs> but boy, he is just all over the map. Yeah. I mean, he's just he's just a sensationalist trying to sell books. Yeah, in 1993, Forbes had a cover story that said, bearish on America. There was an analyst who urged investors to uh, dump their, uh, their stocks in light of the economic policies um, of the new administration. And the compound return over the next seven years was uh, 18%. Wow. And then it missed a little bit as <laughs> well. Missed that and, a little bit, yeah. And uh, perhaps the most famous doomsday call of all time occurred back in 1979. Yeah. Business Week covered, um, had a cover story that said the death of equities. Wall Street was coming uh, out of a second awful bear market in less than seven years. The article cited a widespread loss of faith among investors, and um, they said the death of equities is a near-permanent condition. So equities, uh, they proved to be much alive, Steve. In, in, uh, two, in 1982, uh, after this article, the S&P 500 returned about 22%, and then in 83, it returned 23%, and then in wow. 84, 6%, 85, 32%. 1986, 19%. So, wow. Um, so we they, see these daily with these kind of predictions daily. And so equities were only mostly dead. Mostly dead. That's right. <laughs> to the tune of probably about 20% return. Famous line from the Princess Bride, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> mostly dead. Yeah, the, these, these uh, calls that these in, in economists make are, are pretty, you know, humorous when you look back on them. Um, you know, recession ahead, you know, the market points the way. I mean, yeah, that's uh, can the behavior of the market foretell a recession? That's another question that's out there. You know, is there a casual relationship between a down or sideways market and oncoming economic slump? Some analysts see little or no link. You know, 50 years ago in Newsweek, uh, the noted economist Paul Samuelson 
wrote that equity markets had forecast nine of the past five recessions. Yeah, and that's about right. <laughs> he was he was being the uh, it's sarcastic for sure, you know. Um, but he had a good point, you know. Looking back from 2016 to 1945, Wall Street had seen 13 bear markets, only seven of which, 53 percent, had seen a recession begin uh, within about a year of their onset. So there was really no correlation yeah. between, where there's not a absolute correlation between. A bear market and a recession. Yeah, so here's the takeaway, Steve. Take the the words of the pundits with a grain of salt. I mean, some have been right, um, but most of the time when they're right, the next one they're wrong. They just don't know. No one knows. Um, you know, there's radical predictions every single day. You'll see headlines. I get emails from clients saying, hey, I saw this article. And yep. I can send them an article back that says the exact opposite from someone else. So what the, what we do know is that markets are up 75% of the time and they're down 25%. So when the markets do go down, someone will have predicted it, but that's what markets do. They go down sometimes. And they do. And the yep. key is to be diversified, have a plan, do some rebalancing, add some money when it's down. Um, and you can get through those dips and those downs because they are expected. And over time, historically, it's been a great way to have a good return. Absolutely. You know, and, and markets go through these flat times like we've seen, you know, the first half of this year so far where markets kind of moved sideways and we've been through a, a correction so far this year and sat down with a couple of people recently that were kind of frustrated that we haven't seen any positive markets here in the past five months. But, you know, the truth is it comes in very unpredictable waves and, um, you know, markets move up just like they did um, in the four, fourth quarter of 2016, where it starts off kind of flat like it has this year. And then all of a sudden it takes off and has a great year, but it's all because of just a few months. Mm-hmm. So it's unpredictable. You cannot time it. So you have to just stay disciplined. You have to stay diversified. You have to be patient, unfortunately. You know the P word. Mm, yeah, Everybody that's hates that patient word, but you do have to be patient and just trust the process that over time – you know, the stock market works mm. over time. It's returned almost 10% over the last 80 years. Um, past performance is no guarantee of future results, but uh, history does does give us some, some indication yeah. of what we can expect in the future. So, all right. Good topic. And that leads us up here to our final thing, and that is the prescription of the week. Yeah, so the prescription is is um, don't be brand loyal when you buy your groceries. I mean, mm. you know, you go there, you're making grandma's famous, you know, lasagna recipe, and you may think, hey, if I get generic pasta, it's not going to taste as good. It's not the not the case. A Consumer Reports study found that um, they put 19 brand name foods up against generic counterparts, and of the 19 pairings, 10 scored equally good in a blind taste test. In other words, you're less expensive. Yeah. You know, pasta is probably going to taste just as delicious as grandma's and still not sold. I mean, there's, you know, if you look at some of the uh, the, the staples like salt, sugar, and baking soda, chefs, professional chefs were more likely to buy generic than you and I, Steve. And uh, we, we do buy generic, by the way, and I'm sure you do as well. Oh, yeah. But, you know, if consumers um, purchased, um, you know, uh, more generic brands, they could save about $44 billion per year. So that's right. a lot of money. So well, and there's a lot of things that are just absolutely just just a a a, a staple. You know, I mean, flour or sugar or salt. I mean, those are things that are just 
It is you what know, it is. It is what it is. It's a chemical, you know, basically. Well, not flour, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's probably, it comes from the same farm probably as the the generic does, as the name brand does. So, and oftentimes the generics are actually made by the same company that's making the names, name brand. Um, when I was in the pharmaceutical industry, <clears throat> we used to make uh, acetaminophen, mm-hmm. you know, in our plant. Our plant did, we made it for for Johnson & Johnson, who sold Tylenol, and we made it for a bunch of companies that were lesser known, and it was the exact same acetaminophen that mm-hmm. went to both companies, and all they did was just, you know, put it in a pill form yeah. and send it out. So you, it was exactly the same. You look at um, over-the-counter medicine, and, and there'll be a you know name brand, and then there'll be the store brand, and you look on the back of it, and they have the same exact ingredients. Yep. Um, <clears throat> yep. And so you can save a lot of money if you're... If you go generic uh, in foods, there may be some items that will will be better, but uh, generally generic is the way to go. Absolutely, yeah. Now I'll tell you one more story. When I was in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, not the, the the textile industry as a, a co-op, um, we made tennis ball felt, and we made tennis ball felt for Penn and for Wilson. And Penn was the more expensive brand. It was the same tennis ball felt, except Penn made us put more acid in the wash so it would wear out quicker. So the pen felt, even though it was the same felt, it actually would wear out quicker because they forced us to make it less durable. So, that's, yeah, name brands aren't always what yeah, they're cracked up to be. That's where marketing comes into play. They get you on, they on do. certain things. They make you believe that it's better. They do. There you go. All right. Well, that's been this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of the week. Have a good one. This program contains general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. This broadcast is not a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Smart Mr. Pro is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. 